Well, good evening. Now, I realize Cain and Josh are very high-energy people. And just a, a disclaimer, I am not as high-energy as they are. I'm pretty high-energy. I thought about chugging some Mountain Dew before I got up here to kind of match it. But, uh, but thankfully, I have with me the best sermon you've ever heard to compensate for that. And it's the best sermon because you're hearing it from the best preacher you've ever heard. Now, before y'all kick me out, I'm talking about the Beatitudes, because this is Jesus' sermon. So if you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Now, before we get to reading this, there are a few things I'd like to point out, and that is, it talks about the kingdom of heaven a lot in these, in these verses, and what Jesus is describing is the traits that the citizens of his kingdom are supposed to possess. And another thing to keep in mind is the Beatitudes are not a buffet. Now, I've thought about that a lot. The Beatitudes are not a buffet because sometimes I've realized when I was younger, I was like, oh, yeah, you know, some people have this. Some people are poor in spirit. Some people are peacemakers. That's not how it works. If you're a citizen of God's kingdom, you should possess all of these traits. And finally, Cain kind of told me about what he preached about this morning, and it follows in really well. And that is talking about the historical context of Jesus and especially his teachings, and particularly with the Beatitudes for me. And that is the Jews were expecting a physical kingdom. They were waiting for a Messiah to come that would overthrow the then Roman government and create a new Jewish kingdom. Now let me ask you this. If you... We're going to violently overthrow a government. What type of people would you want with you? You know, you want people like Rambo, you know? Uh, you, know the, you know, those type of tough guys, you know? You, you want some violent people. You want some passionate people. You, you want some zealous people and maybe some bloodthirsty people. So keeping that in mind, let's look at verse 1. It says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, right now, I would imagine they'd be like, Okay, that's kind of weird. Well, let's keep listening to him. It says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who, I can just imagine them saying, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for revenge, for glory. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So we can see these are very counter-culture statements, and not what they expected at all. So tonight what I would like to do is break down the Beatitudes. Let's go to each one and see what we can gather from it. Now, this is not an extensive explanation of all the Beatitudes. You could do an entire sermon about just any single one of them. So this is a very condensed version of that. But 
I think it would be beneficial to us if we look at that. So the first one, poor in spirit. Poor is usually a negative thing. It's not really good when you say you're poor. Because what that often means is you're lacking in something. You're missing something. And if you look at that word spirit, it's actually from the word pneuma. Which means air or breath. So you know those people that you kind of say, ah, they're full of hot air. I kind of get that imagery. They're poor in spirit. They're not full of themselves. And I think the key point is here is self-righteousness. They are not self-righteous. And the best example I can think of this is found in Luke chapter 18. Turn with me to Luke chapter 18. We'll look at verse 9. It says... He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee portrayed self-righteousness perfectly, didn't he? See, he's like, look at what I do. Look what I do for you, God. I'm doing all these things. I'm a good person. But those who are poor in spirit have the tax collector's attitude. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Because no matter how good you are or how good you think you are, you've still sinned. And you've required mercy. And we're going to get into that a little bit later. And then we have those that mourn. Now, this, this is an interesting one, and, and I'm not going to say I understand this fully. I, I don't. But a couple things that I can think of is, well, there's different types of mourning. And the first two that kind of popped into my head was mourning for loss of loved ones. And we know from 1 Thessalonians 4.13 that we are not to grieve as those who have no hope. Whenever we lose a brother or sister in Christ we know that they're going to be with our Father. And that certainly is a comforting thought, and we can be comforted in that. But another thing is mourning for our sins. I think we struggle with this one. I know I do. I've heard this analogy before. Y'all ever know somebody who had a company credit card? You know, and then when they go out to eat, they tend to be a little bit more generous than they'd usually be, right? They're like, oh, yeah, well, we'll order a whole cake instead of slices of cake. Oh, yeah, get, get that 20-ounce steak. You know, it's no big deal for the whole table. Why are they so generous? It's not coming out of their pocket. Someone else is paying for it. And I worry that we use Jesus' blood like it's a company credit card. How many times do we just swipe it, not really thinking about the cost? Now I'll take it a step further. 
Imagine Jesus told you that he was going to take that company credit card away from it for a week. He said, I'm, coming, I'm going on vacation. Next week, you can still access my blood, but this week, you're on your own. If you mess up, you pay for it. I'd imagine we would all be very careful that week. Probably more careful than we usually would. And that's because we don't realize the cost. We don't really fathom the price that Jesus and his Father paid. And if you ever struggle with that, one thing that has helped me in my life is Isaiah 53. Just read that. I encourage you all to read that as often as you can to put things back in perspective. Now we have, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, meekness and poor in spirit, I always kind of thought were the same thing. Which they are very similar, and they both have to deal with humility. But what I would say, again, I may be wrong on this, but poor in spirit is kind of how you view yourself before God. You realize that before God, it's not because of your righteousness, it's because of what God has done for you. And perhaps meekness is how we view others. How we view the people around us. Turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Read with me verses 2 through 5. It says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You see, what I really like about this is that it says, uh, look, uh, let's see here, in all things, not some things, consider your brother more important than you. Now, I've asked this before. If we had this same mind that Christ had, would we ever see a congregation split up? If we counted each other more significant, more significant than ourselves, would we have any rivalries or not like a brother or not get along with a brother or sister? If we followed this passage perfectly, would it? I would say no. I'd also be willing to say anytime you do see a congregation split up, and I've been in split ups, you can see conceit and rivalry. And I tell you, I've seen some brethren get mad about really ridiculous things. It's shameful. It's really shameful. And this is one of those things that it's... I, I don't do that. I mean, that guy... He's the worst. He, he's always trying to you know, one-up, or he always has an issue with everything. That's all of our burdens. We're supposed to bear each other's burdens, aren't we? Now, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You know, I, I've never been married before. But... Uh, I could imagine that if you went to your wife and you said, Honey, I love you because God told me I have to. 
I would imagine that wouldn't go over too well. I'm going to start ducking a little bit. <laughs> now, the thing about that is, does anyone have to tell you to be hungry? Does anyone have to make you be hungry? Hunger is a naturally occurring thing. You, you don't eat for a while. I, I mean, I don't look like it, but I eat a lot. And I get hungry very often. But I think it's more of a struggle for us to hunger and thirst for things that are spiritual. Or that of our uh, spiritual nature. And the thing is, Satan will always give you junk food to satisfy those cravings. He offers sex, booze, and drugs, and all these fillers to try to satisfy this deeper longing in you. I've heard it said before that everyone has a God-shaped hole in them. I firmly believe that everyone is searching for God, whether they admit it or not. And Satan provides phony things to, to momentarily satisfy that. Because what happens after junk food? Get back hungry. But only God provides the true spiritual food. And there are a lot of ways to feed yourself spiritually, I believe, but one of the main ways is studying your Bible. How important is that? But how often do we forget? You know, I like to ask myself, how many times have I eaten today? Well, I've eaten, you know, twice so far. How many times have I fed myself spiritually today? I've been embarrassed by my own answers before. Think about every time you eat, think about, have I fed myself spiritually? And another way is being here. Coming to worship in Bible class. And I struggle to see how, how you can skip out on being with your brethren and honestly say that you hunger and thirst for righteousness. How can you say that? Are you truly hungry? Turn with me to Ezra chapter 7. Or I'll just read it for you. It's a little hard to find. That's why I marked it. So verse 10 says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. To me, that's what hungering and thirsting is all about. You study, you do it, and you teach it. That's a, that is what we're supposed to be doing with God's Word. We need to study, do it, and teach it. And then we have, blessed are the merciful. This one, I, I, I struggle with this one. Because I struggle with patience. And nothing will try your patience more than people. But... I've heard it said before that if God knew we would have done better alone, he would have left us alone. But he didn't, did he? And I've thought about, you know, we... Whenever someone, like, cuts us in line, I don't know about you, maybe it's just me, I get really mad. I, it, it bothers me to no end. Or when I'm driving and then whenever someone cuts me off and then goes really slow in front of me, I'm, I'm like... Grabbing the steering wheel, gripping, I can't believe they did that. You know, it, it, it's frustrating. It makes me angry because they cut me off. You know, they did me wrong. They they cheated me in some way. And growing up with three other brothers, I felt this a lot. You know, like I, he, he took my cookie. You know, it's it's, it's frustrating. 
But really, these are all intertwined, and I think if you feel that way, which I feel that way, it's partly pride. Why is that? Because they wrong number one, right? They wrong me. But I would say that we don't have the same attitude when we wrong God. Because whenever someone does us wrong, we want we want it to be made right. You know, we want that guy to cut in front of me. I want him to get a ticket, you know. I want the cops to catch him. But whenever we sin against God, what do we want? We want mercy. We want God to be patient. And even when people do us wrong multiple times, we just give up on them at a certain point, I feel like. I, I have. It's not right. But we just think not. they're always going to be that way. What if God had that attitude with us? I'd be in hot water. And we all know Matthew 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant. Remember, that servant is forgiven this insane amount of debt. His master just pardons it. But he goes to his fellow slave. What does he do? See, he doesn't even just ask for it. It says he grabs him by the throat and says, pay what you owe. And honestly, how many times have we had that attitude with people? That they owe me. They did this wrong to me. They need to apologize for this. First Corinthians tells us, wasn't it better to just take the wrong than look like fools? Have the ability to just walk away. And we know that if we are not merciful, we will not receive mercy. Again, these are all intertwined, being poor in spirit, meek, hungry and thirsting for righteousness, being merciful. You can't have one without the other, really. These are all intertwined. And then perhaps my favorite one, because it's so impactful, is blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Look at verse 21 with me. It says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. You see... A lot of times, we can make the mistake of just fixing the pattern versus fixing the heart. Because if someone has a disease, we don't try to just treat the symptoms, do we? We try to get to the cause of it. And we know from Matthew 15, Jesus tells us that every sinful, evil thing comes from the heart. That's where it begins. I know a uh, my, my friend's wife has done a lot of counseling, and, and she was counseling a younger girl who said she was struggling with keeping boundaries with her boyfriend. And yeah, she could have gone in, in, in details of saying, okay, don't do this, 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 and this. But she said, you know what you need to fix first? Your heart. Because if it's in your heart, you're going to fall eventually. If you don't get to the root of the problem, you're just fixing the symptoms. 
And I think it's no coincidence that says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's kind of like wiping your lenses. Right? I have glasses, and when they get dirty, it's hard to see. And then when I wipe them, it's like, ah, new world. That's what we have whenever we purify our hearts. And 2 Timothy just told us how to do that. He said, flee youthful passions. We need to run away from it. That way we can see God. I'm not too much of a handyman. I do a little bit of stuff here and here and uh, now and again. But uh, if I turn a faucet on and there's dirty water coming out, would I replace the faucet? Nope. I'd get to the pipes. I'd get to the source. And that's what we have to do. And if you find your, this is especially applicable. If you're struggling with the same sin and can't seem to tackle it, you're not attacking the right thing. You're not getting to the right thing. Because it's just going to be a vicious cycle if you don't fix your heart. And then we have, blessed are the peacemakers. Turn to Romans chapter 12. Look with me at verse 16. It says, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I'm so glad that it says right there, live peaceably among most. Or li- right? Live peaceably among all. Guess what that includes? That includes people you don't like. That includes people who aren't reasonable. I don't know if y'all know Gary Sandusky. I love that man. And he describes those kind of, uh, this people, you know, that kind of like to get under people's skin as human chiggers. As a very apt description <laughs> I've found is some people are just human sugars, you know. Some brethren act like they were weaned off a dill pickle. They're not too fun to deal with. But guess what? They're your family. And as much as I want to replace some of my brothers with other people, I can't. I'm stuck with them. And you know what you do? You love them. You put up with their unreasonableness. You're patient. You're merciful. And why? Because we have a merciful God, don't we? We have a patient God. And we're supposed to imitate Christ. And then we have the last one. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I've heard it said a thousand times before that we don't face the same persecution that they were faced with in that day and time. Uh, in that day and time. But I've thought about this a lot. I think there's almost a more nefarious type of persecution that we're going through. 
in this social climate, it is social suicide to talk about religion and politics. It's a common rule. Don't talk religion or politics, whatever you do. At Thanksgiving, when you're with your all types of your family, remember, no religion or politics. Just avoid the conversation. What does that choke out? Evangelism. Now, granted, I would much rather face this type of persecution selfishly. But spiritually, I believe it's more dangerous to people. And as Christians, we need to accept that we're not going to be accepted. Some people may accept us. But guess what? You're probably going to lose friends. You very well might lose your job. And that's not spooky stories. I know people who have lost their jobs because they were Christian. Because they had to do something, because they were put in a position where they were going to have to do something that violated their conscience. That they knew Jesus wouldn't want them to do. Guess what? They knew Jesus was more important. Turn back to 2 Timothy with me real quick. In chapter 3, verse 12, it says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Do you desire to follow Christ? Well, get ready. Might be a little more than you expected. But guess what? You're in the kingdom of heaven. And that means you're going to be with Christ in heaven. Now, this sermon in particular steps on my toes. <laughs> Driving on my way here, a couple people cut me off and I really struggled with that merciful thing. But guess what? If you feed yourself spiritually, these things will be in your head. And when I was tempted to lash out, and even when I did and repented of it, I'd get hit in my head, blessed are the merciful. You see, when you have these things in your spirit, in your mind, when you feed yourself, when you're humble, when you're not stubborn, when you treat your brethren like you love them, and when you're not so exacting, Everything kind of turns out better. Even if it, you don't feel it physically, maybe you're not jumping around and leaping around. You have that inner peace because you're a citizen of the kingdom. Now, if you're not a citizen, what are you waiting for? 1 Peter 3.21 says, Corresponding to this, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but as an appeal to God through Jesus Christ for a good conscience. Have you been baptized? If not, why not change that? Become a citizen of the kingdom as we stand and sing.